needed this morning. Middle schoolers are dismissed at this time, as so they'll be going up in the youth room. Again, parents, they'll be getting the information on the snowshoeing trip next Saturday, so be sure to ask them and grab that. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 7. Jerry has some extra Bibles in his hand. He'd love to give you one if you need one. We're going to cover the first 18 verses of Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Hebrews in the back of the New Testament, 7th chapter. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study in the book of Hebrews. Now, this chapter we're going to go into this morning, it can get a little bit technical, and I don't want us to get bogged down in theology, but it's going to bring us to a conclusion of really the importance of, of Jesus, what he did for us, who he is for us. And, and I pray that as we go through it, that we would make the application that the Lord desires for us to make, to really be attentive to what he's saying to us this morning. I, I do think about how Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans when he was writing about his brethren, the Jews, concerning the people of Israel, he would say in the 10th chapter, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and in seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And what we have seen over the last several weeks in our study of this epistle is that the writer, whether that was Paul the Apostle or Barnabas or somebody else, we know that whoever the human instrument was to write the, these words down, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we see that we are being instructed, just as the initial reader, the Hebrew Christians, being exhorted not to go back to try to establish their own righteousness, which is not the righteousness of God. Trying to gain God's righteousness by going back to the Old uh, Testament sacrifices, to the rituals, that which is not sufficient to bring forgiveness of sin and salvation. And today, the same thing is true. There are many people that try to establish their own righteousness, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. So know that Jesus, he is the author of eternal salvation, chapter 5, verse 9. He is superior. He is supreme. His sacrifice is superior and supreme to the animal sacrifices. His priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And the theme of this book is it doesn't get any better than Jesus. And keep in mind that the initial reader of this epistle would have a great deal of understanding of the Old Testament. They understood about the sacrifices there in the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 7. They understood about the role of the priests and the Levites. They understood the, the priestly line, uh, the feasts, the law, all of that. And as we have discussed, there was a great temptation for those first century Christians. A lot of them were Jewish believers that converted to Christianity, and that was all part of their history. That was all part of their lives. And they would see the temple and the feasts and the trumpets being blown and the sacrifices and the smoke rising. And here they are. They're being persecuted. They're meeting in small groups and small houses. So there would be this great temptation to go back to that, to go back to the old works, to, to be involved in dead works, to trust in that which is inferior to the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And we saw back in chapter 2 that we read that the author of Hebrews introduced this whole idea that Jesus is a high priest, that he's a sympathetic high priest, he's a, com uh, he's a merciful and faithful high priest, he's a compassionate high priest, as we read in chapter 4, that we can go to the throne of grace in time of need to receive mercy and grace. And those were incredible words that 
would come forth from the pages of this epistle to the initial readers there. And that we saw in chapter 5 that he's a high priest forever. And the initial reader, having that background of the Old Testament, would think this. How can Jesus be a high priest? Because the earthly high priest was from the tribe of Levi, a descendant of Aaron. We know that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And we know that God said specifically that only the priests came from the descendants of Aaron. We see that confirmed in Numbers chapters 16 and 17 when there was that challenge to Aaron concerning his position as the high priest. And in chapter 17, you see that whole story. We don't have time to go into it about Aaron's rod butted there in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that confirmed by God that Aaron and his descendants are indeed the priests. So intellectually, they would have a hard time those Jewish believers accepting that Jesus is called and referred to as a high priest. But the writer would introduce the fact, again, that Jesus' priesthood is a different priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood or also the Levitical priesthood there in the Old Testament, that he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, the reference, chapter 5, verse 6. And as that is beginning to come out, that truth, all of a sudden in chapter 5, there was this pause. The, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, I'm going to develop this more, that Jesus, his priesthood is a priesthood forever, but I first want to address this whole problem that I see that is happening with you, and that is having a dullness of hearing that brings about spiritual immaturity. So the rest of chapter 5 and the chapter 6 that they are being exhorted, that they need to take in the meat of the word so that they can grow to full age, or that is chapter 6, verse 1, that they could come into perfection. That word simply means into maturity. Listen, I want to remind you again, and I'm going to keep reminding you. There's no other shortcut to maturity than to be one who knows the word of God. And not only knowing it here, but having it in your heart, because the word of God, chapter 4, is alive and powerful, isn't it? And it is profitable for us, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And it is that which causes us to grow. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So after that pause about Jesus being our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we're going to see that it's picked up again in chapter 7, that discussion. And really will continue through chapter 10, showing that Jesus, his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. His sacrifice that he provided was sufficient to take away sin once and for all. The animal sacrifices didn't do that. And Jesus provides a better covenant. So let's begin to look at that in Hebrews chapter 7 as we read in verse 1. For it is Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains the priest continually. So the writer here making a case that concerning Melchizedek, which is superior to the Levitical priesthood, so what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, we go back to Genesis chapter 14. And I'll read it to you if you want to turn there quickly. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 14, we see that Melchizedek is introduced to us for the very first time. And in that chapter, Genesis chapter 14, 
there is a story that precedes Melchizedek coming out to meet Abraham after Abraham came back with the spoils. You see, in this chapter that perhaps many of you might know, that we see that there is these four kings from the north. They come down into the plain of Jordan, which is around the Dead Sea, and they take over these five kings, these five nations. Now, back there in Genesis, as you see, four kings take over these five kings, uh, nations. It, we don't think of those nations like the Assyrians that we're talking about, the Babylonians in Isaiah, or the Egyptians. What it's more like is cities. Two of those cities, one was Sodom and one was Gomorrah. That sounds familiar to you. As well as three other cities, again, in that area of the Dead Sea. So here come these four kings cruising down to the Jordan uh, Valley. They take over these five cities, these five kings, and they put them under submission. These five cities and kings are serving these four kings under their submission. And after 12 years of serving those four kings, the five kings got together, they joined forces to rebel. But there was a problem. It didn't work. Those four kings defeated them and began to take all of those people away captive. Among the captives was Lot. And as many of you know, that Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham was living in the city of Sodom. Now, just a little side note while we're talking about Lot being in Sodom. In chapter 13, here's Abraham. He has a bunch of uh, herds of animals. Here's Lot that has a lot of animals. The herdsmen are butting heads. And Abraham comes to Lot and says, Lot, listen, there's plenty of room for us here. We don't need to be fighting amongst each other. So you pick where you want to go with your herdsmen and, and, and all your livestock, and I'll go the opposite direction. And it tells us there in chapter 13 of Genesis that Lot looked towards the plains of Jordan, and it looked like a garden. And you see Lot that he's pitched outside of the city. The next time you see him, he's living inside the city of Sodom. And then the next time you see him, he is there at the gate of the city, which is the position of leadership. We also know that Peter in his epistle tells us that Lot, righteous Lot, was vexed in his heart because of the great wickedness of Sodom. There's a warning that's given to us that I want to pass along that's very important. You see, where are you going to go, Lot? Well, this looked good. It looks beautiful like a garden. And he was lured by that. He went to there in Sodom that even though there was great wickedness that we know that characterized Sodom and Gomorrah, yet it was economically prosperous. Even Jesus gives hints of that in Luke chapter 17 when he said that the Son of Man is like the days of Lot. They were uh, buying and they were selling. They were building. They were expanding. I mean, it was a happening city. It was probably culturally stimulating and it attracted Lot. He said, this looks good. I'm going to go there. Next thing you know, he's in the city. And the next thing you know, he's sitting at the gate of the city. And I just want to say this that the world is going to present itself in that way to you, and particularly you who are young. They say, come here, this looks good, and this is what's going to make you happy. This is how you're going to be successful economically and stimulate it culturally and, and come join us, and you find yourself there. And those of you who have Jesus in your heart, you're going to be vexed in your heart because of the carnality and sin that is all around you, and you're going to find yourself being taken away captive by the world. 
And that's what happened to Lot. Go back to our story of chapter 14. Abraham gets word, man, my nephew's been taken off into captivity. He gathers 318 of his servants. They strap on their swords. They head up north. They go as far as Dan. Dan cleared the northern part of the country where the headwaters of the Jordan River is. Very beautiful, lush place. We've been there. Matter of fact, we've been to where they found a gate of Dan that's, uh, it, that has been um, determined as 4,000 years old. They stand there and think Abraham and his servants came through here. It's absolutely incredible. But they went as far as Damascus, which is even further north, and Abraham and his 318 warriors defeated those four kings, would bring back all the spoils that they had taken and the people, including Lot. And it would be at that time, here comes Melchizedek. I'm going to read it to you in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Melchizedek would come, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, who is the king of Salem, which means peace, he is king of peace. He shows up out of nowhere to bless Abraham after that battle described that we just talked about in chapter 14. He brings Melchizedek bread and wine. And what does that symbolize? Well, it symbolizes communion. We know as Jesus would institute communion at Eucharist there in the upper room. But here comes Melchizedek. Now, here's an important point. He is a king and a priest. In the Old Testament, you could not be both king and priest. The priests, again, coming from the line of Aaron, the kings would come, particularly as you look at the house of Judah, the line of David, which was Judah. If you were a king, you could not do the duties of a priest. You couldn't become a priest. It was the wrong tribe. And we see what happened to Uzziah, who was the king of Judah, who went into the temple. He's burning incense. And 80 of the priests come in and, and confront him and say, Uzziah, you can't do this. And Uzziah said, bug off, leave me alone. And all of a sudden, Uzziah was struck with leprosy. And he ended up dying because of that. He was prideful. He shouldn't have been doing that. So they couldn't be both king and priest. Uh, you were king or you were a priest, but not both. And here we see that this Melchizedek, uh, he shows up. The information given to us in Genesis, his name is associated with righteousness and peace. And here he holds both offices of priest and king. Now, who does that remind you of? Of course, it reminds us and it speaks of Jesus. He's the righteous one. He is our peace. First John calls him Jesus the righteous. He is the one that brings us peace with God. Because before we surrendered our life to Jesus Christ, we were separated from God. We were at enmity with God. And now he brings us peace with God, but also in our lives, Christian, he desires to bring us the peace of God. And as we look at Scripture, righteousness and peace are often found together in the Word of God. And righteousness comes before peace because we cannot have peace with God and the peace of God in our lives until first we have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You read Isaiah chapter 32, that the work of righteousness is peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Psalm 85 verse 10, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. 
Then again in Psalm chapter 72, verse 7, In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. And then in James chapter 3, as you read the end of the chapter, uh, beginning in verse 17, I think it's a very important uh, principle that's given to us in God's word. It, it talks about in James chapter 3, the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. The difference between wisdom that comes from above and that which is earthly, that which is sensual, that which is carnal, even demonic. We want to know the difference, don't we? So James gives us a grid to which to run everything through, your conversations, what you're involved in, and this is what he says. But if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. In other words, what you're saying, conversation you're involved in, uh, what you're involved in in your life, if it is self-seeking, if it produces bitterness and envy, and it is something that brings confusion and is worldly, then it's not godly wisdom and it's not from above. That it is worldly, it is earthly, it is sensual, and it is demonic. But he goes on to say, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. There are those two words together by those who make peace. Listen, very important. I would go back if I was you and look at those verses. And everything that you are a part of in life, the things that you hear, the things you are involved in, the things that you're watching, is it self-seeking? Is it earthly? Is it, you know, uh, full of envy and bitterness and confusion? Then it is not from above. And it is not from the Lord. But if it is pure and it's peaceable and gentle, willing to yield, full of truth, and without partiality and without hypocrisy, and produces peace, then it's from above. And you can run it through that grade. I think it's very important for us as Christians to be able to do that. And as we see that later in this epistle, that we're going to be told that it's God's purpose that you and I, that all of us, bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So to emphasize, if we want to have peace with God, we must be justified by faith in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And listen, if you want to have the peace of God, and I think every single one of us want that, don't you? Then desire to live for Him and have His righteousness worked out in your life. And if you pursue carnality, if you live in carnality or sin or worldliness, you're not going to have the peace of God in your heart. Well, as we continue back to our text here, so that He's the King, this Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And concerning Melchizedek, verse 3, he is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So on the basis of the description of Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7, what we read in Genesis chapter 14, Bible teachers, not to get caught up in it, are all debating, you know, is this a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Is it a theophany, they call it? Uh, there are some who say that because he, Jesus, is the king of peace. He's the king of, of righteousness. 
we also know that in John chapter 8, remember that as the religious leaders are confronting Jesus, they would boast, well, we're Abraham's descendants. And Jesus responded by saying that Abraham, that he loved and rejoiced in seeing me in my days. And they said, what, you're not but 50 years old? You've seen Abraham? And then Jesus makes that declaration, before Abraham was, I am declaring deity. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So did Jesus see Abraham and some point to that and say that was Melchizedek? Now, there are other great scholars that say, no, that he isn't describing him in verse 3 as, you know, what he was in the essence of his being. But when he appears in the Old Testament, there's no mention of his father and mother, his genealogy in the book of Genesis, where genealogies are all, all over the place, and they are everything, especially when it comes to being a king or a priest. It's like, again, Melchizedek comes out of nowhere, and verse 3 is not saying in the language that he is eternal, but rather there's no record of his genealogy. He just comes out of nowhere. And Melchizedek is a type or picture of Jesus. That's what his priesthood is about, a priesthood ha that has no end. He is made, notice there, as we read, like the Son of God. Verse 15 of the chapter would tell us, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. So he's just a picture of the one who would come, the high priest, Jesus Christ. So I think the bottom line, let's sum it up in this. It is not saying that Jesus has a Melchizedek kind of priesthood, but it is Melchizedek that has a Jesus kind of priesthood. So here Melchizedek shows up. We continue to read in verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So Abraham would tie to Melchizedek of the spoils that he brought back from that battle. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. They boasted they were descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek was so special, so unique, that Abraham tied to him. He recognized that Melchizedek was greater than he was, and he was a priest of the Most High God. Let's continue reading in chapter 7, verse 5. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a, a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. Get is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and bless him who had the promises." Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better, verse 7 tells us. And here mortal man receives tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So here, what is being told to us, the point that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. In chapter 18 of Numbers, see, we're told that as the children of Israel were to go into the promised land, they would receive an allotment. We see that in the book of Joshua, right? It was the Lord that came to the tribe of Levi and said, you're not going to receive an inheritance. You're not going to receive a section of land, but I'm going to be your inheritance. And there would be different Levitical cities that were spread throughout the nation, and those other tribes would give to the priests and the Levites to provide for them based on their authority and position given by God. They were ministering there in the tabernacle. They were ministering at the temple. And so they were provided for in that way. The point that the writer here is making is Abraham recognized the authority and position of Melchizedek from God and did not hesitate to tie to him. 
And then in verses 9 and 10, what is being said here, because the whole tribe of Levi was genetically in the loins of Abraham when he gave to Melchizedek, we see the Levitical priesthood paying tithes to the priesthood of Melchizedek, proving that it is a superior priesthood. So to speak, the writer says, as he's, he's trying to get that message across. And Melchizedek also received tithes from Abraham, but Abraham also received Melchizedek's blessing, verse 6, bless him who had the promise. And the point being made in verse 7, the lesser is blessed by the better in terms of position, in terms of authority. And when Abraham allowed Melchizedek to bless him and pay tithes to him, it was a, a clear understanding of Abraham's part that Melchizedek is greater than me, the patriarch. And you might think, so what? Here's so what. That was a powerful statement being illustrated there in Genesis to the initial reader to show them that there is a need of a new priesthood, and that's why he sets the stage for that. That's why he's writing this, and now he begins to say that there had to be a new priesthood, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron, or that is the Levitical priesthood? You see, the, the priesthood of the Old Testament was not perfect. It could not, listen, bring a right standing before God. The Levitical priesthood would bring the law, associate it with the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law declares God's righteousness. The problem, and Paul declares this in the book of Romans, and particularly in the book of Galatians, that the law doesn't declare us righteous. It declares us guilty. We're all lawbreakers. And it would not make sense at all for God to make another priesthood if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, could bring us righteousness and bring us forgiveness to take away sin, to bring us salvation. All it does is declare us guilty. So verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. It was God's intention to replace the Levitical priesthood with a superior priesthood because the Old Testament priesthood is not sufficient for our ultimate forgiveness and salvation. You see, we're going to see that later it's going to be explained it was a kofar to cover sin until Jesus, our great high priest, came and died for our sins once and for all. We're going to see that term, once and for all, once and for all. A superior priesthood came. And the word changed in the Greek carries the idea of putting one thing in place of another. There is a charge, or that is a change of the priesthood. There is a change of the law. What is meant by that? Well, the following verses explain that as we continue, verse 13, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood, and yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
the initial reader would say, Jesus can't be a high priest. He's from the wrong tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. And you have to, according to the law of the Old Testament, be of the tribe of Levi to be a high priest. So how is it that you Christians call him your high priest? He doesn't come from the priestly line. And what is being told to us and what was being told to them? That Jesus comes not from an earthly priesthood, but he is a priest according to verse 16, I love it, to the power of an endless life. You who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures that God has declared concerning Messiah in Psalm 110, that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus showed that his priesthood was superior. Why? Listen. Because he triumphed over death. And he rose from the grave by the power of God. Those priests in the Gospels, the chief priests and elders, they put Jesus to death. They arrested him and beat him and handed him over to the Roman authorities. But death could not hold him. And he cried from the cross, it is finished. And I've completed the work. I, I paid the price for your sins. I've made atonement. And he was put into a grave and he rose after three days. And he is the great high priest. He's the sympathetic high priest. He's the merciful high priest. He's the compassionate high priest that has provided forgiveness of sin for you and for me. And his priesthood is forever. And I think what is being told to us as we wrap it up here this morning, verse 16 really makes the distinction, I believe, between religion and Christianity. Listen, all of us, we know people who are religious. They're trying to have a right standing before God on what they do and their own righteousness. Even as the initial readers were struggling with this, that Jesus really is his sacrifice and the fact he rose from the grave is sufficient for, for us, for our salvation. And you see, what can happen is, is that someone says, I'm going to come to God, and if I do this, if I you know, sacrifice more, study more, pray more, serve more, then maybe I'll be acceptable before God. And what religion says is this, that I can stand before God and say, I am now holy based on what I have done. You know people like that. You can ask people around you, those who work alongside of you, those maybe in your family, neighbors, old friends, you know, why should God let you into heaven? Because I'm a good person, and I've done good things, and my good outweighs my bad. And my question when somebody says that is, how good do you have to be? Where's the line? How righteous do you need to be? And you see, that's religion, and it's true biblical Christianity that says it's based on what he did. And it is relationship. And the law of God manifests the weakness of the flesh in declaring that we are sinners. And the Levitical law cannot change that I'm a sinner, but only reveal that I'm a sinner. And it's understanding who my high priest is and what he did for me and coming that he is indeed the captain and the author of our salvation. And he has provided forgiveness once and for all, allowing the Spirit of God then to have dominion over my life and the Spirit of God that dwells in me, listen, and in you is far more reliable than the most self-disciplined person because it is the power of God 
to enable me to live for him. And that's why Paul would write, oh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. You know the story, John chapter 3. And it was the most religious man in the nation. He was called by Jesus, the master teacher of Israel, John chapter 3. And he comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you're from God because no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus looked at that self-righteous, religious man who dedicated his life to teaching the law, uh, of teaching of the sacrifices, of teaching the Old Testament law and, and the stories. He was the master teacher of Israel. And Jesus said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And that floored Nicodemus. What do you mean? You must be born again. Can you enter your mother's womb a second time? Oh, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born in the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, must be born again. And Nicodemus, I don't know that night if he received Jesus as Lord and Savior, or we know is later on, because Jesus also said to him, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And Nicodemus in chapter 3, that the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And it would be Nicodemus at that cross, seeing Jesus lifted up for him. And he says, I get it. And he would go along with another religious leader, Joseph of Arimathea, and they would go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. They would go to Pilate and say, we don't care about our religiousness, our position, our reputation. We're going to take care of the body of Jesus. And they became disciples of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between religion and relationship. And that's what Christianity is all about. When people ask you, what makes Christianity unique? It's about relationship with the true and living God who's provided forgiveness and salvation for you and for me. Do we understand that? Amen? Okay, declare that. Declare that to others. Make it clear to them. The incredible gospel based on what he did for you and for me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this season that we enter into. And, Lord, we thank you for this chapter that we're not finished with, and it could get a little technical, but, Lord, even though we see the point being made and it gives us understanding more than anything, we bring it home to ourselves that we don't live in religiousness. We don't put our trust in that which can't save us. We put our trust in you, a person, not in performance, but in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, not in religion, but in relationship with you that only comes through Jesus Christ. Not in trusting in our own righteousness, but trusting in your righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And I do pray if there's anyone that's here this morning, you've never done that. Maybe you thought, hey, I'm okay. I can stand before God and be righteous because I went to church or I listened to a Bible study or... I was confirmed in a church. I was baptized. Hey, as good as those things are, they will not bring you salvation. It is trust alone in Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. And if you've never called out to him and called on the name of the Lord and asked for forgiveness and for him to sit upon the throne of your heart and life 
as your personal Lord and Savior, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Today is the day of salvation, to have a relationship with him, to be forgiven, to have the hope of heaven. And you can pray right where you are, Jesus, I come to you. And I understand very clearly that it's not about being religious. It's about surrendering my life to you. And I do that right now. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins and that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for the good news that Jesus loves me so much that he died for me and rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. And I believe that. So I now come humbly before you and surrender my life to you to walk with you, to learn of you. I thank you for this new beginning and to trust you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And listen very quickly while we're being respectful. If you prayed that prayer, will you put up your hand and put it back down? Anybody at all in this sanctuary or out in a coffee shop or if you're listening on live stream or later on the radio, give us a call. But we give these invitations and raising your hand is saying, I've just made a decision for Jesus. And I've made a decision for eternal life. And we're not going to prolong it, but Lord, I do pray if there's anyone that I don't see, that Father, that you would just bless them. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. And may we all go out of this place rejoicing in you because, Lord, we have the Spirit of God in our hearts that testifies to us that Jesus is alive. We don't believe in a dead Savior. We believe in a risen Savior. And I thank you for our salvation, secure in you. So, Father, may we go out of here rejoicing. I thank you for everyone being here this morning. And, Lord, may we go to experience righteousness, living in your righteousness, to experience peace in our hearts not pursue the things of the world, but to pursue you. Pray you bless everyone here as we go our way now. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Would you please stand? Amen.